0: Hello and welcome to the RICE Historical Review Podcast. I'm Melissa Carmona, co-director of podcasting, joined with fellow co-directors Josue Alvarenga and Rajuda Valachie. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Alan Sellers, a senior from Sidrich majoring in history and political science and director of copy editing at the RHR. Today, we are discussing Alan's senior dissertation surrounding the Zainichi, or Korean population in Japan, in the years following the Second World War. Alan, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. It's a nice day. I'm really excited to be here right now. So thank you for having me.
0: Awesome. That sounds great. Thank you for being here. We love to highlight different members of the rice community, especially the rice history community and the work that you guys are doing. Um, So with that, we can go ahead and jump right into the questions. Uh, So can you give us a brief introduction to the topic and basic ideas of your thesis?
1: Yeah, of course. So I think it just is the best to start with um, an overview of just the occupation of Japan. So In 1945 in August, Japan surrenders in World War II to the United States and America comes in and occupies the country. This lasts until from their surrender all the way up until 1952 uh, when the last American troops sort of leave Japan. Obviously there's still bases there today, but the the peace treaty happens in 1952 and the occupation is formally over at that point. So all throughout World War II, the United States had been preparing how they would reform Japanese society uh, once they took over and once the war was over. Um, And so the first couple of years of the occupation um, is filled with relatively extensive reforms to Japanese society, kind of directed by the occupation. Um, Yeah, Um, the the, the actions the occupation takes includes purging ex-military officials and fascists within the previous Japanese government. Uh, this included also an expanded right to vote. Uh, they enacted female suffrage within Japanese politics. Uh, there's a lot of labor reform and encouragement of union formations within industry. Uh, and this includes land reform. So redistributing land more equitably uh, they thought would help curb any chances for a re-emergence of fascism within Japanese society. Um, And this included the most significantly, enactment of a new Japanese constitution. And they had a lot of different, I guess you could say almost progressive or at least liberal reforms to Japanese society um, aimed at making it impossible for another militarist imperialist state to uh, come back up again. Um, This included an article called Article Nine prohibiting the Japanese state from having a standing army or engaging in an aggressive war. So yeah, this doesn't – these are all reforms that happened within the first couple years of the occupation. So it starts in 1945, throughout 1945, 1946, and to a certain extent into 1947. um, The American occupation in Japan was relatively aggressive in these reforms, I guess you could say. Um, And this doesn't last forever, however. Um, And beginning in roughly 1948, there's what scholars call a reverse course in American policy. So you see ex-military officials who were once purged earlier, uh, meaning they can't engage in politics, they can't um, run for office or hold any significant positions even within the economy um, or in newspapers, they're de-purged. They're now allowed to engage in politics, um, really influence things. Um, so these guys are depurged. Um, unions were cracked down on largely because American officials and Japanese officials as well um, view them as hotbeds for communism and just subversive activity in general. And finally, the U.S. begins recreating the Japanese military. Um, this never is done like so outright as to subvert Article 9 that I mentioned, but they do really arm Japanese police forces kind of uh, with American arms and kind of make it a sort of not a military, but a military. They know, everyone knows what's going on, but it's kind of cloaked in, uh, not, it's, it's cloaked. So why does this happen, um, this kind of reverse course? So American policymakers looking at East Asia, there's the Korean War starting in 1950. The Chinese Civil War starts in earnest not soon after World War II ends. Um, And they're really concerned about the stability of the Japanese state, primarily because they see it as their only really stable or strong ally in the region. And they want a, primarily a stable Japan and that they can use as a buttress against a further rise of communism in East Asia. Um, And this is again, right at the beginning of the Cold War. Um, So they're really thinking about these things. And personally, So that's just the the overview of everything that's going on, the occupation of Japan in the 1940s and early 1950s. I'm looking into how Koreans living in Japan, also known as like Zainichi in Japanese, fit into this more general story. Um, So the Japanese empire, or Japan had taken over Korea in 1910 and really had imperialized the country all throughout the end of World War II, at which point they were forced to give up Korea. Um, and throughout this time, there's a lot of Koreans who were either forcibly moved to Japan or moved because conditions in Korea dictated that they need to go find jobs elsewhere. Um, and so there's a big question as to what to do with these Korean people living in Japan. Now that Japan doesn't ha- own Korea, they're not technically subjects to the Japanese empire anymore. And at least many in the Japanese government really didn't want these people around. Um, They wanted them to leave, but many of them didn't want to go back to Korea, partially because conditions there following World War II were god-awful. In 1950, there's a civil war, so a lot of people didn't want to go back to that situation. Um, And they want to stay in Korea, or in Japan rather, and they do for a time. And so, Japanese society doesn't really want them there, at least the Japanese government doesn't really want them there. There's a lot of racism, xenophobia, discrimination against these people. A lot of them are illiterate, don't have good jobs. Um, But at the same time, they're organizing. They have their own different organizations which bring them together to enact some sort of political force. Um, And the Americans, they also need to figure out how to deal with them or how the Japanese state should deal with them. And that's really what my topic is about, how the American states understood these people living in Japan, these Korean people, how they treated them and how they reacted to their organization, their protest, and very, a variety of other things. So yeah, that that's, that's just about it, it's a lot.
0: <laughs> no, it really makes you think of like a small pocket or like population of history taking place within like a larger, like very much more, um, like more time period historical genre. Um, mm-hmm. But after hearing all of that, how did you you know come across uh, choosing this as your topic to focus on for your thesis?
1: So originally I had always been looking at the American occupation of Japan as a more general topic. And originally I wanted to look at um, kind of leftist organization and how Americans viewed Japanese communists um, for a variety of reasons, because. They fit into this story as well. Um, I noticed there's already a lot of literature on it. Um, but every once in a while, you'd start hearing about or reading some mentions of things that were happening with Koreans at the same time, because they're somewhat connected. Um, just as American policymakers viewed Japanese communist and Jeff, like more leftist organizations as a danger or a threat to the occupation, uh, and more generally, Japan and and American objectives in East Asia. They similarly viewed Koreans in very similar light and similar terms. Um, So yeah, that's what I was reading about that. And then I saw this other population that wasn't talked about as much. There is literature on this. I want to pretend there isn't, but um, I thought it would be a more interesting thesis to go off of. And I've also done work on Japanese imperialism already. in Korea. I, I did a few like a one research project on how Americans understood Japanese colonialism in Korea in the 1920s. So I already had somewhat of a background on this topic and wanted to continue looking into it. That's why I'd say. What are some of the
0: inherent contradictions that the United States tried to overcome between reform of Japanese society and maintaining a stable ally in East Asia?
1: So yeah, um, reform is obviously like somewhat disruptive. And because the American policymakers had, for example, enacted or forced had the Japanese government um, allow unions, allow organizations to form in the immediate aftermath of World War II, um, there's obviously protest. I mean, Japan wasn't, especially after World War II, was in a state of serious rebuilding. Their economy. A lot of people were almost starving. Um, just getting food to people was a big issue. So there's a lot of political radicals kind of running around. People saying that the Americans should leave, especially on the left. Um, and you have a lot of challenges to what type of state America was building in Japan, and what kind of state was forming in the Japan, in, reforming in Japan. Um, But at first, at least reform-minded Americans wanted to allow these things to continue. They didn't want the Japanese government to crack down on the communist party or socialist parties because at least they thought that allowing these things to exist was sort of natural. Like, yes, there would be uh, people who were against the project that Americans were building, but that democracy or at least the American vision would prevail. Um, So they allowed these things to continue Uh, for the first few years, but um, you have the ramping up of the Cold War as the 1940s close. Um, Eventually, in 1949, China follows the communists. Um, You have the Korean War. Um, It starts in 1950, but even before then, there's a lot of instability in Korea. And obviously, there's actually another occupation in Korea going on there as well that isn't going well, or at least in South Korea. And so there's a lot of instability running around in the region um, and kind of a ramping up of tensions between the United States and Russia, uh, just a general ramping up of anti-communism within the American society and in the government. Um, You have this kind of big concern that any subversive groups were a real danger to more general American policy goals in the region. And so first you see um, generally communists kind of targeted, their organizations started getting attacked, Newspapers start getting closed, their people start getting purged um, from things, from from any leadership position really uh, starting in 1948. Um, And so the reason is because keeping these reforms, letting a kind of, keeping like political pluralism was seen as a danger to the Japanese state. Um, and furthermore, any danger to the Japanese state was seen as a danger to the general stability of East Asia. and furthermore, stability in East Asia was critical to ensuring that communism didn't spread throughout the entire region and allow Russian influence to predominate over an entire section of an like, uh, entire continent which uh, the United States felt was very important at this particular time. So all these things are tied up together. Um, and so you start seeing reform or the continuation of serious reform uh, as a threat or at least American policymakers saw the continuation of serious re- reform as a threat to stability. Um, and so they start moving against it or stop really trying to enact these reforms beginning in 1948. Um, and this you decided seek, it continues, so yeah.
2: So now let's let's bring the Zainichi into all of this. Um, why did American policymakers fail to change the relationship between the Zainichi population in and larger Japanese society, especially considering that their reforms were taking a more liberal, almost progressive edge before reverse course?
1: So Yeah, so the the problem is is part of it is these people weren't seen as entirely important. Um, at the beginning of occupation, the American hope was that all of these Korean people would return to Korea. Um, At the beginning of the occupation, I believe there was is millions of Korean people residing within Japan. And many of them did return to Korea. Um, I think about by the end of 1946, around 600,000, only 600,000 remained. um, And maybe like 100 or 200,000 more people remaining just that weren't accounted for because records weren't kept that well. Um, So there was hope at first that they would just return to Korea and not be a problem within the American occupation or a problem that the Japanese government would have to deal with. Um, But as I mentioned before, a lot of these people didn't necessarily want to return because the economic situation in Korea was bad. There was political violence all over the place. So there was some danger Uh, to going back to Korea, and many didn't want to return to Korea until there was a united Korea, like one Korea that they could return to and be a citizen of. Um, At this time, Korea is split between two uh, rival occupations, uh, the Soviets in the north, the Americans in the south. Um, And moving on, Americans somewhat understood the history of imperialism that the Korean population had faced. They knew that Japanese people discriminated against them. Um, but they never really took any moves to solve these issues. And as you see later on in the, during the reverse course beginning in 1948, um, as I've read documents, it really seems like they've just kind of, Americans have kind of adopted some of the stereotypes or the understandings of Koreans that had already existed within Japanese society. Uh, many in Koreans, just like any other people residing in Japan, bought and sold on the black market uh, just to get by. Many of these Koreans were um, poor, illiterate. Um, and so Americans, along with Japanese officials, saw them as more of just a criminal threat and also generally a political threat. Um, many of their organizations were aligned with the Japanese communists, um, simply because that, the Japanese communists were the really only political forces that were willing to talk to them or engage with their issues. Um, So what ends up happening is as Americans increasingly become more and more suspicious of just general leftist group, leftist organizing, they also become suspicious of Korean organizing. Um, So, you see this kind of turn against them. At first, they're not really combat, the Americans aren't looking to go necessarily against or crack down on Korean organizing. Instead, they just kind of want to push the problem away in the early occupation and not really think about it. Um, but really, as you see, in 1948, they start getting a little bit more aggressive uh, with how they deal with Koreans and Korean issues.
0: I actually have a bit of a follow up question, and this might just me like be me not understanding, um, but you like seem to sit like, or this actually might be like, what your opinion is on this question, but there seems to be like a conflation between like Korean organizing and like leftist organizing in Japan. Do you think that was like warranted based on like, um, what like each group was like kind of organizing towards or like what causes they were fighting for, or was that just how they were like perceived by like outside American um, like influences?
1: So yeah, there's definitely a conflation. When you read reports, when I've heard re- American reports on Koreans and their issues, um, they're always like talking about how these Koreans are relating to local Japanese communists, communist parties, and how just generally their organizations are maybe aligned with uh, the more Soviet occupation and later on the North Korean state. So there definitely was something there. Uh, Many Korean organizations were aligned with leftists. Um, But at the same time, there's a big, I, I, at least I see, there's a big misunderstanding that the Americans had in that many of these people, their only connection maybe to the North Korean state or maybe just leftists in general was the fact that these were the only people even attempting to talk to them or fight with them, I guess you could say. Um, there was or- Korean organizations who were you know, conservative or at least non-communist, but these were relatively small and they went unsupported by the South Korean government for the most part and really kind of uh, not not powerful, not a really significant force. Um, see, you had like the leftist Korean organizations, they were doing things like building schools um, and having Korean schooling. So a lot of these people simply were attached to these organizations simply because they wanted their children to be taught in Korean. Um, it was more about Korean nationalism, maybe wanting to maintain an identity, really more than their political affiliation um, or their ideology in that sense. Uh, that, so there was a little bit of a misunderstanding on the part of Americans, at least I understand, in making that conflation totally. Um, and it made it to where they were never really willing to deal with them because they just assumed that uh, Koreans were acting in bad faith or many of them were just communist dooges wanting to undermine the occupation, undermine Japanese society rather than just giving their people civil rights and things like that.
0: Can you talk in depth about the 1948 rights in Kobe?
1: OK, yeah. That's, that's a yeah. So I mentioned schools just now. Um, and right after the surrender of Japan, you had a lot of Koreans' um, organizations take over um, or create their own schools. And a lot of times, they took over abandoned Japanese buildings. Um, And what these schools were was just essentially Korean schools. They had teachers who were Korean. They talked to the children. They taught the kids Korean. They had their own curriculums, um, their own organizations, funding, and operating these schools outside of the general Japanese like educational system. And they were allowed to exist relatively untouched in 1946, 1947, simply because the Japanese government was unable or unwilling to, you know, deal with that issue. They weren't really going after these schools simply because they had more pressing things to do. Like I said, people were literally starving in Japan. Um, They were just, they were having enough on their plate, just reorganizing the regular Japanese general education system. um, So much so that they didn't want to, or they just couldn't, uh, you know, close these schools or tell Koreans that they couldn't operate and run these schools. Um, so this the situation doesn't last forever. This kind of benign neglect doesn't exist forever. Um, so starting in 1948, you see the Japanese kind of central government tell a lot of prefectural local governments, uh, telling these local governments that they need to close down these Korean schools um, and get these Koreans either in, into the fold of general Japanese education. Um, so these, some of these local governments start to do that. And that means you know, sending the police out, telling them that they can't run these schools and closing them down, um, you know, kicking them out of these buildings and things like that. Um, this was not received well in many places. Um, so in Kobe uh, in April, 1948, uh, local Japanese government or authorities moved to close the schools and they close a few of them. One of them is resisted by the people in there. And a day after the disclosure, um, a group or a large, a group of Koreans go to, and some Japanese people go to essentially talk to the or the, the local mayor and governor who is at the you know prefectural capital building of sorts, um, or office. And they kind of go into this building, at least from the story that I pieced together, they go into this building, um kind of occupy it with them in there and eventually kind of turned into a much larger gathering as more and more koreans and just other people hear about it they all go to that area in kobe the office kind of surround the building um with the goal of reopening the schools uh, releasing some people who had some koreans who had been arrested uh, previously protesting other japanese actions so they occupy this building, have kind of trap the governor, mayor in there, um, and have him like rescind the order to close these schools, and which he does. So eventually, the local Americans there, you know, the United States military has a base not too far away. There's plenty of occupation officials running around seeing this happen. They get wind of this, and they basically go into like severe red alert um, and send out all these, they send out thousands of troops into the area, into Kobe uh, to put down this little uprising, um, which they do. Over the next couple of days, they arrest, I want to say, yeah, thousands of Koreans. And the way they do it, they just kind of drive around um, in their little Jeeps, um, usually with a Japanese policeman with them. Um, identifying whoever is Korean based off of their identification cards or just how they look, essentially. So they just go around, pick up any Korean, take them into custody, who looks like they could have been involved in the riot. Um, so they do this with thousands of people, really kind of cra- like, and they put down this little uprising. The order is unrescinded. Obviously these, these, these schools stay closed and the United States military ensures that that remains so far. Um, this was bit, like really scary to American officials because they saw that there's tons of Koreans in all over all different places in Japan, and they were worried that this would happen over and over and really um, erode the authority of the Japanese government. Um, so at least what I what I research about and talk about, they spend a lot of time. Uh, looking at this issue. They personally, the American officials personally prosecute many of them. In particular, there's about nine, what they call, thought of like ringleaders that they prosecute heavily. Um, they sentenced some of these people to uh, about like 12 years in prison and um, forced labor essentially or de- and deportation back to Korea. Many of these people were Korean. Um, and the, the, the court records also reveal just how uh, arbitrary their prosecution standards were. They picked up one guy who had been in an entirely different city of Kobe the entire day and had just come back the night of back home because he lived in Kobe. They were about to, you know, they were charging him with a crime that like well up to like 12 to 15 years in prison. Even though he hadn't been there the entire day, they eventually found out he wasn't because he had a few alibis. But it leads you to wonder how many times it happened over. Like people who are uninvolved, um, just getting caught up in you know because they were Korean, we're going to arrest these people. Um, so you see that, and it affects, and it kind of you see they talked about it this a lot. It made uh, press in Korea, uh, the South Korean, the uh, the occupation, the occupation officials in South Korea had to release statements about it. Um, they really, you know, this makes America, this really turns American policymakers against the Korean population. They see them as truly a subversive force, a chao- like chaotic and a force that needs to be like put down and put a lid on uh, from here on out. And it's largely because of these riots. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's all about that.
0: <laughs> I think I want to ask like a clarifying question. So way back, so, starting like going back to like the cause of the riots, which was like the closing of these like Korean schools. Was there any like legal basis? Uh, cause you mentioned it was like local authorities who were doing these like in Kobe. Was there any like legal basis that they had within like their own regional law codes or like Japanese like constitution for them to be able to do this? Or was it just um, them like uh, executing this by themselves?
1: Um, so yes, they they did have legal justification in a way. Um, I haven't talked about it yet just cause it's a thorny issue. Koreans residing in Japan didn't have Japanese citizenship, and nor were they going to get it. And they didn't really have any special privileges um, as nationals within Japan. Um, so that was a part of the problem. And also, under Japanese education, you had to have, like, they had to somehow have a private school. Um, set up and, you know, ordained by the local government, which had never happened because they weren't going to allow that no matter what. The Japanese officials were never interested in having these be permanent institutions. Um, And so because they were kind of extra legal, um, they weren't entirely supposed to, at least by Japanese law, supposed to exist. Um, That's a real part of the problem. I mean, American officials never really worked to Find a solution to have these um, schools be like ordained by the uh, Japanese like local governments as official private schools as things that should exist um, and could exist, um, and obviously Japanese officials weren't horribly interested in having that happen either. Um, so they did have illegal, I guess, excuse, but obviously this is entirely constructive. Um,
0: Okay, great. Thanks for the clarification. Um, so yeah. I guess we can move on to the next question. Um, so throughout your research, like, what are some of the primary sources that you've been kind of utilizing so far?
1: Yeah. So mostly it's been uh, documents you can find. Um, some of what are so. All right. Let me start over. Um, mostly it's government documents. So it's communiques between, let's say, the State Department. Um, Communicates between the occupation various offices um, within the occupation. A lot of times they have reports, like internal reports, that they use to understand these situations. Um I've also used British files um, because the British were someone involved within the occupation as well and were always keeping tabs on sort of what was going on. Uh particularly in the Kobe riots, you see uh more documentation from their end that just helps fill in what is missing from the United States documents. And of course, you see, I use a few other just more, I guess, out, extra government documents or outside of it. Um, things like how scholars are writing about Japan and how some newspapers were writing about these issues. Uh, uh, all in English, generally. Um, So yeah, I've been using like mainly government sources, but other sources kind of fill in maybe some gaps and kind of try to capture how uh, Americans were thinking about these issues and maybe some of the. Yeah, so that's it.
2: That's absolutely fascinating. Thank you for sharing that with us. We've learned so much so far, but we want to know what's the most interesting thing you learned through your
1: research. Yeah, the most interesting thing I've looked at in my research and what I've been looking at recently um, is generally how the Korean population and the issues surrounding them fit within the more uh, general trend of the remilitarization of Japan. So, as I mentioned before, at the beginning of the occupation, the Japanese military is wiped out, um, all their officials are purged. Uh, Japan isn't going to have a military anymore so was planned, um, but beginning, generally the scholarship says this, plan, this idea kind of eroded beginning maybe in 1950 um, because the Korean War starts and the American officials are really concerned about rearming Japan and having them be able to defend themselves in case there is either an invasion or there's more general war in Asia. Um, and since this article nine that prohibits a, like a military exists, they have to do it generally through more, I guess, covert or uh, veiled means. So this thing called the uh, National Police Reserve is founded and they're called police, Um, they're supposed to be, but in reality, they're a a national guard, they're an army. Um, They're given American or like surplus weapons, like military grade weapons. the United States. I even saw documents where they're giving him tanks and bazookas. Um, So this begins in earnest in 1950. But what I have found is that this process does begin a little bit earlier in 1948, and it's partially because of these disturbances with Korea uh, or with the Korean population. So these riots in Kobe in 1948, they have the Americans more seriously looking at the Japanese police system as weak and not really effective enough to deal with uh, civil disturbances as these. So they want to crack down or they want to have the Japanese be able to crack down themselves and not be able to not have to call on American force to stop things like this. Um, so they start thinking about like increasing troop num- or not troop numbers, police numbers. They start thinking about more, giving them a little bit more power, centralized power, um, and maybe what are the implications of that. So this doesn't extend this lead to militarization but it kind of starts this process of trying to rearm the japanese state if not through literal military but through police um and so i think that was the most interesting thing i found that the issues surrounding this korean population i think really started this process of militarization the soft militarization you could call it maybe um and it started with you know police and you know, eventually moved on to really giving the Japanese government weapons, ammunition, all military grade, uh, partially on one end to make sure that there couldn't be an invasion, but also that these police forces would be able to put down civil disturbances within Japan, uh, such as these riots in Kobe.
2: Kind of moving more to the research side of things, what were some of the challenges that you faced while researching the Zainichi post-World War II?
1: So yeah, um, at least for me, the most disappointing part is I can't read K- Korean and my I can't read Japanese that well, and well enough to really do serious research in it. Um, so I definitely am only getting a part of the story. Um, and this is easily the most frustrating thing um, because I really wanna know, more what the Koreans were doing. There's a lot of gaps because the Americans are just looking at them as their role as like subversives. Um, They focus a lot on these riots. They focus a lot on their organization. But you don't get a sense as to really what the Korean community is doing at this time in totality without being able to read Korean or have sources within that that speak to those. Um, So that's been a big frustrating part of my research. and furthermore, this is a massive topic. Um, even if I did have those sources, I'm not sure if I'd be able to fit it into uh, the, the balance of the thesis or be able to really like read all these things. So already, you know, I'm reading through, you know, hundreds if not thousands of American documents, reports and just getting that side of the story is a lot in itself. Um, getting all sides of the story would be even more. Um, so I think it's the most disappointing me, part of me, and it's, you know, driven a little bit of conflict in how I view my own research, the fact that I'm not able to really get uh, these Korean voices and also how Japanese people are handling these things as well. Um, directly, I kind of have to get it, I have to read against the grain of the American sources that I do have. Um, so yeah, I think that would be easily the biggest challenge I've faced.
2: Well, reading against the grain is always a good skill to have, especially when we're considering American military sources yeah. <laughs> on this particular issue. And yeah. we also wanted to know how your research process, if it was at all, affected by COVID-19.
1: Um, definitely. I mean, I, I feel like I'd, easily the probably the most obvious one is that in absence of this, I probably would have been able to Go to you know Washington. Look directly at the archives. The, a lot of these things are digitized, but um, a lot of them aren't. Um, it would have been really nice to see these documents in person. Um, and a lot of them also exist within Japan as well. Um, I don't know what I'm missing. Uh, if there's more out there, um, so I have had to rely main, mainly on digitized things. Things that I can get through Fondrin. Uh, which have kept me busy, but um, I definitely wish I could get my hands on more.
0: Does your research remain relevant today? How so?
1: It definitely does. So a lot of the issues surrounding Koreans living in Japan, their rela- or their nationality status, uh, their ability to get schooling that is outside the Japanese education system has continued into this day. Um, and more generally, um, the Japanese state is quite a, I guess you could say illiberal when it comes to immigration. Um, for the most part, residency is rarely given and even worse, citizenship is rarely given. Um, Japanese society is relatively insular and xenophobia is relatively rampant. Um, I would say it's part of this story, Is that they were never really, I don't know, forced to contend with their imperial past or forced to, you know, reexamine their border controls in this time, partially because American policymakers kind of reinforced their ability to, um, you know, be xenophobic, have um, stringent controls on who got to be in the Japanese body politic. that the, those issues were never really contended with. They never really um, you know, re-examined their own relationship to other Asian people, uh, other nationalities residing within their borders. Um, and it's a real problem for them today because they do need other, like, like any country, they need other people immigrating into their country. Um, they have a lot of guest workers which aren't afforded that many rights um, which kind of stifles the immigration within the country, which many acknowledge that they definitely need people to come into their country, but their gover- government is unable or at least unwilling to really change their immigration laws, uh, partially because it's so ingrained uh, within Japanese society that you know Koreans, other people, they're, they're different and therefore um, shouldn't really be allowed to enter the Japanese body politic. Um, So yeah, it's definitely very relevant to today. Um, Yeah.
2: Thank you, Alan, for taking the time to speak with us today. We hope that this semester will be a productive one for podcasting and we can feature more members from the Rice History community. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. Don't forget to check out the Rice Historical Review Virtual Edition alongside picking up your hard copy, which is coming soon. In the meantime, check out our other podcasts and short form pieces at www.ricehistoricalreview.org. Thank you for listening and remember, we further the future by promoting the past.